This week's Golf Digest podcast is brought to you in part by TaylorMade Sim, featuring the Sim driver designed with an entirely new head shape to make the driver both fast and forgiving where you need it most, the downswing. Sim irons with an improved speed bridge and echo damping system to deliver a distance iron with a forged-like feel. And the Sim Fairway Woods with low CG to help you hit it higher and a V-steel sole to launch it easier from any lie. Go get fit for Sim throughout the entire bag and experience the effect it has on your entire game. Available at your local retailer or at TaylorMadeGolf.com. Coming up on this week's Golf Digest podcast, we talk to veteran PGA Tour caddy Paul Tesori and get into the transatlantic Twitter feud that broke out over the weekend. My God, my swing feels like an unfolding lawn chair. Why do they even have one if you're not supposed to hit it there? Because it's fun! We're having fun! What is this, Coastal? Mine's off the rack. I wish Tiger Woods was here to help me with this. We'll do it live! Welcome back to the Golf Digest Podcast. This is Sam Wyman. Lots to get into this week. We talked to veteran PGA Tour caddy Paul Tesori. We talk about Sung Jae Im, uh, his big win at the Honda Classic. But let's start with the fact that you're hearing from me and not from Alex Myers. Alex is here, but Alex uh, is home with a dental emergency. I didn't want to bring it up. No, I think I didn't you want to deserve some credit for fighting through it. Can, can yeah. I get some details I, on this emergency? Well, I had a root canal a couple years ago, and I think it's gone bad or something. I, I, I've never been in this much pain, uh, certainly not with the dental issue. And uh, I'm awaiting a call back to see if I can get in today. That's why I'm here. It's pretty brutal. Yeah, the root canal wasn't that bad when I got it, but it, it, now it's awful. I mean, I'm dying. You never know anyway, based on so your face. You're a warrior. Way. You're a true warrior. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. I'm trying to show some, some grit. Uh, speaking of grit, how about that? Uh, Sunjay Hib. <laughs> a, a lot of grit down the stretch by, uh, by a lot of these guys. Dan, you know, actually I'll start with you because obviously you just talked to him a couple weeks back uh, at Riviera, uh, kind of angling on the whole premise that he was, you know, going to get this first win soon. And, and you know, tell us a little more about him, obviously, because, you know, he's a guy that we, we see his name on the leaderboard all the time because he plays basically every week, but uh, I don't think the casual golf fan knows too much about him. Yeah, so he's, he's been a thing for a little while now. Um, I don't know if people realize this, but he yeah. I think he won the first event of the year on the Corn Ferry Tour in 2018 at like 19 years old or 20 years old, and he led that tour, right. the money list, uh, wire to wire, which never happens. Um, so just, right. he, he's been a consistent performer um, since the beginning, and, and not just consistent when he plays – Consistent meaning he plays all the time. I think he played 35 or 36 times last year, so you can do the math. That's more than two-thirds of the year that he's on the road playing golf. Um, and, and then, yeah, hit the ground running his uh, rookie year on the PGA Tour, 20 years old, playing every week, and just such a such a solid ball striker. I think anyone who watched the President's Cup um, and paid attention, that was their probably their the, the world's first introduction to the casual fan to Sung J M and just how solid this guy is. Um, it, it takes a certain type of player to make as many cuts and, and to be as consistently um, contending as he is. And it's, and it's usually a really good ball striker because, the, you know, as important as putting is, it's if you're not hitting the ball well, you can putt great and, and you're still not going to be anywhere near the top of the leaderboard. So he's a guy who hits a ton of fairways, hits a ton of greens, um, and gives himself a ton of looks. And I think we all knew this was coming. Um, there, there, was, there was little doubt that this was coming. No one knew exactly when it was coming. But um, when you see a guy who hits the ball as consistently as he does, who plays tough courses as well as he does, um, and who just gives himself just sheer numbers as, as many chances as he does by playing every single week. 
Um, I think this was a surprise to nobody. Uh, and I think it's really good news for the tour because it's another young star. You know, we don't really think of him in the same mold as the, the Wolf or the Morikawa or the Hovland, but he's in between Wolf and, and Hovland and Morikawa in age. He's, he's 21. Mm-hmm. Hovland, number 22. Wolf is 20. And then also for the President's Cup, you know, we've seen this incredible bump. Cameron Smith has won. Adam Scott wins two tournaments right after. Mark Leishman won. Um, Abe Anser is up to top 30 player in the world. And now you have Sung Jae Im, who's also in the top 30. So, you know, I think there's a chance we look back on that international team and say, hey, you know, that was that was something. We didn't give them enough credit oh. because we all talked about how, how lopsided that was. Look at you pumping the international team's tires <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. How sustainable do you think that is for him, his schedule? Because that's the thing that it's a, it's a, you know, a remarkable. Yeah. And you wonder if it's going to kind of have diminishing returns after a little bit of time. Well, I think he needs to get a place if he's going to play less because he doesn't <laughs> really have anywhere to spend time. Right. That's one of the things that people you know love about him is or, or love to talk about. He, he doesn't have a place in the U.S. And he still lives in Korea, quote-unquote lives. I don't know how much time he spends there. but So he goes hotel to hotel, and in off weeks, he just kind of has to find a course that will let him practice. Um I don't think he'll play as much going forward. He's actually, someone said on the broadcast, they said, there's a, you know, he's thinking about playing less. Because I don't really know what the point is now. He's, he's in every tournament. He's in the top 50 in the world. He's a PJ Tour winner. Um, he's right. not, you know, uh, he, I'm sure he wants to win the FedEx Cup, but that, the butters, you know, that's in the playoffs mm-hmm. when, you, when you really win that. So I don't know. You'd think he'd play less now because what's the incentive, really? Well, and then also there's something to be said for when, when you win a PGA Tour event, you're, the goalposts change, right? Mm-hmm. Now it's like, I'm sure at one point the goal was to win a PGA Tour event. Now it's, now you start thinking about, you know, the majors, totally. you start thinking about, you know, top ten in the world, all those things, and suddenly you have to build a schedule around those goals, and sometimes the, they run in conflict with playing every week. Yeah, I mean, we talked, we asked Scotty Scheffler about that just a couple weeks ago, and Kind of, you know, once you get on tour, you're so excited. You, you do want to play every week, but you, you definitely have to start managing that, or, or you, yeah, you start burning out. But uh, I mean, you mentioned the age; it's crazy. I mean, he turns 22 at the end of the month uh, already, as you mentioned. You know, Corn Ferry Tour Player of the Year, PGA Tour Rookie of the Year last year. Even though he didn't win, he still was able to to win uh, the Rookie of the Year because he made it all the way to uh, the Tour Championship, and now already a PGA Tour winner. Uh, it's a pretty remarkable run for somebody. But you're, you're right, Dan. It was really that President's Cup, I feel like, where everybody was just raving about the way he hits the ball. And, um, you know, this, this the Honda Classic, I mean, it, it's, it's a fun event to watch, uh, I think, for, the, for the, even the casual fan because it, it's, it's almost got that U.S. Open vibe of guys struggling. And, and in a way, you know, it, it opens the field up to guys like this who, who might not be the best putters. I mean, you really just have to keep the ball in play here. And by in play, we mean avoid the water, which is on 15 of the 18 holes. And certainly, uh, Sung Jae Im did that. He, he really did that um, on 15 and 17, the two par threes of the bear trap. Not only did he birdie, I mean, he went right at the flag on both those approach shots. Uh, Mackenzie Hughes did the little the Sam Cassell balls dance uh, after the one on 15. That's how impressive it was. Uh, so this guy, you know, had a chance. He seized it. Uh, you know, good for him. He played really well. And, and to, to your point on the President's Cup, I mean, you know, we were all lamenting that Ernie Els isn't going to captain again, but I, maybe Ernie really didn't do that much. I mean, <laughs> you're, you're right. These guys these guys were uh, a pretty formidable team. And, and, of course, the U.S. was down Brooks and uh, a couple other things. Guys, you know, DJ hadn't played in a while. But so that, that you're, you're right. Looking back on that, that did look like a more uh, even matchup. Um, the biggest story, though, I think, of Sunday, which was kind of crazy, was this, I call it this transatlantic, for the most part, <laughs> The biggest story for us who, who live on Twitter, I suppose. Exactly. For, for golf Twitter, 
Uh, it got heated on Sunday. And it, it really, though, it, it stemmed from – there's a couple things here at play. Uh, the broadcast kept pointing out that Tommy Fleetwood uh, did not have a PGA Tour win yet, which is a fact. And he still doesn't because, well, we can talk about what happened on 18th hole. But it was really, I think, the tone that Paul Azinger used that really ruffled uh, some feathers, particularly the feathers of European Tour scribes on Twitter. So, guys, your, your thoughts on this whole t- situation? Well, I, people, I think, were, let's not pretend like there was an outrage before uh, Azinger said that because I tweeted something early in the morning saying, hey, you know, Big day for Tommy Fleetwood, chance to win his first right. PGA Tour event, and people were mad already. So, right. here's the thing. Exactly. You know, you, you talk to anyone, or not anyone, there are certain guys who are content to, you know, win a P- European Tour event once every couple of years and have a nice career over there and not really, you know, try to make the foray over here. There are some guys, there's there's not very many of them, but there are some guys. Most of the Most of the players who are elite European Tour players want to come over to the U.S. and play full-time on the PGA Tour and win on the PGA Tour. That's just a fact. It's a step in their career. I tweeted a uh, photo from an article where Tommy Fleetwood himself said, look, if you want to be the, one of the best players in the world, you have to win in the U.S. That's why we think of Justin Rose and John Rahm and Rory McIlroy, guys, even Paul Casey, you know, guys who have won in the U.S. multiple times. We think of them as in a sort of a different category than the, I don't know, Alex Norin or Robert Carlson's of the world. It's a, it's just a different right. beast. And that's, I think, all we, that we, I was trying to say, at least, that Fleetwood has said himself that he needs to win in the U.S. Yeah. in order to be one of the best players. So one of the things I think is so frustrating about the way that people complain on Twitter is they don't care what the actual person that they're talking about thinks. So we're talking about, <laughs> we're talking about Tommy Fleetwood and we're talking about right. winning on the PGA Tour. He has gone on the record and say, I need to win on the PGA Tour. So then you're just... Right. Recommunicating what he said, and and there's still complaint. And look, did was Azinger a little bit of a you know what when he said the way he said it? Sure, but that's Azinger, and he's on TV, and his right. his job is to make comments that spark debate to a certain extent. Um, I just people are just really soft, yeah. you know. It just I, I didn't I didn't see I, I understand if you could be he was a little arrogant, a little condescending, but I mean come on, yeah, I, 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 yeah. I would say there's there's two things at work here. One is um, questioning. Tommy Fleetwood's medal because he hasn't won on the PGA Tour and he has to prove he can get it done. I think most people took exception to that because obviously he's proven on some pretty big stages he can get it done. So that part, I can understand why people be upset. The part about, you know, that there's a hole in his resume because he hasn't won on the PGA Tour is perfectly legitimate. It's true. It's, it's, it's perfectly look, legitimate. It, look, we, yep. we in the media and everyone uh, kind of invents these storylines about resumes. A couple weeks ago we were talking about how Tiger Woods, the greatest player of all time, has never won at Riviera. Okay? It's a hole in his yeah. resume. It's a hole in his resume. And so Tommy Fleetwood has not won on the PGA Tour. Colin Montgomery, one of the greatest players of his generation, Hall of Famer, never won on the PGA Tour. That was a hole in his resume. Yeah. And I would – so that's that's the first part, you know, just that any hole is worth noting. You know, I've never won in Antarctica. It's a hole in your resume. Okay, the second part <laughs> is that – let's be honest. The European Tour, great tour, great players come from there. Name me a player in America who has said – you know what, I've really achieved uh, a level on the PGA Tour, and now it's time to really test myself on the European Tour full-time. No yeah. one's ever done it, okay? This is the best tour right. in the world. It doesn't say the European Tour is a is a second-rate tour or an inferior – I mean, I guess – It is saying, a second-rate tour. It, it, it's, it's the second-rate tour. It's the second-best tour in the yeah. world. I'm sorry. It's the end of the story. And so right. I don't understand why that's a discussion point. Yeah, and I think also one of the things you're saying about resumes is, okay, Ricky Fowler – 
right? So Ricky Fowler won the Players Championship. Mm-hmm. All right, one could argue. I saw a lot of strength of field arguments yesterday. Oh, you know, the strength of field in the Dubai is what is greater than the Honda Classic. The Players Championship has the strongest field in in, in golf, much stronger than the PGA Championship with all the club pros, much stronger than the U.S. Open with all the. He won the he won the players. He's never won a major. We can still talk about the fact that he hasn't won a major. Just because you've won a tournament with higher strength of field doesn't mean that you you have no holes in your resume now. And no one's disputing that Tommy, like you said, no one's disputing that Tommy Fluton is not a great player, but you have to do it over here. And he exactly. said that. He said that. That's what I don't get is he said that. If you're really, he, I he think said it. these people, yep. are, I, I also think, you know, when they're saying, oh, our only problem is with Azinger's tone. I don't think that's true. I think that Azinger's, not what true. Azinger said struck a note with these people, struck, you know, and there's a little bit of, I don't know if it's insecurity, whatever it might be, that they were upset about not just the tone of what he said, but the content of what he said. I, I will. I would just not to interrupt you, but I will say that this is a fantastic thing for golf because one of the first things I became aware of when I talk about the Ryder Cup is why the Europeans take the Ryder Cup so seriously is because they do have this real um, provincial protective quality about their tour mm-hmm. that they constantly feel yeah. like this is an opportunity to prove the worth of their tour, which is a perfectly legitimate uh, cause and a perfectly legitimate reason to to you know to 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 show that you know the golf is very good. Obviously, it's proof that the. Do golf you think is- that that's among the players? Because every year there's like one European tour guy who makes it on points from the European tour, but the the vast majority no, of those players think, is, is US. No, based. you listen to European tour players when they when they win the European or win the Ryder Cup. Well, why is this so important? It's you know if they one of them will invariably say because it's uh, it's on behalf of our tour. They still feel that pride and a little bit of an inferiority complex about their tour, and they feel like that venue, that forum, is an opportunity to defend the worth of the tour, which ultimately is great for golf. It's great for uh, a, a storyline heading into the Ryder Cup, which, we, of course, we have this September. Yeah, I mean, without a doubt. I, but, you know, back to Dan's point, I, I do think it was interesting because uh, having seen Azinger's comments, and it, uh, admittedly, I weighed in before having seen it, he did come across a bit condescending. However, like Dan said, there was a lot of blowback already, a lot of defensiveness going on before Azinger's comments, either from you know Dan tweeting out that uh, Tommy's going for his first win. I saw the PGA Tour tweeted out the night before that it was his first 54-hole PGA Tour league, and, and some people took offense to that. I mean, it's a, these are facts. So I just don't understand why people are getting so – it's the same thing as saying he's never won a major yet. He hasn't won a major. He hasn't won on the PGA Tour. So – you know, and, and it's not like he, he's only played here a couple times. I mean, he's 64 career starts now. And that's, that's what, you know, when you bring up people like Lee Westwood, as Azinger did, who's only won two times, people go, oh, well, he doesn't play on the PGA Tour. He has 238 career starts on the Tour. Now, if you want to take out the majors, fine. That's still about 150 career PGA Tour starts. He has two wins. And I'm sorry, a guy who was number one in the world, you would expect to win more. I think even he would admit he would expect to win more. So uh, the whole thing's just kind of crazy. I mean, Dan... Out of curiosity, has your your boy uh, Matt Fitzpatrick, who I think has won what five times on the European tour, he has not won in the U.S. Has he alluded to this being uh, kind of a, a monkey on his back? I mean, I would imagine he wants to win on tour too. Yeah, I think sort of what we were saying earlier. It's he doesn't want anyone to devalue what he's accomplished. Sure, but yeah, sure. everyone wants to win on the PGA Tour. You know, his his goal for the last couple of years was to get his PGA Tour card. That happened, and now that he has his PGA Tour card, the next goal is to win. It's a di- it's a different thing. It's it's a totally different category. Um, and and Matt also has won some big European tour events. He won the DP World in like 2016, yeah. I think, which is their year end one, which is one of the strongest fields they have all year. It's basically their tour championship. Yeah. Um, 
But I don't think he would take offense to someone saying he's never won on tour before and that he needs to win on tour in order to make his next step in his progression as a professional golfer. And I think a lot of this is, you know, people just, especially on Twitter, they, they like to dig in and, and, and sort of they're, they're entrenched in their position and they're not willing to change. And I think there was another instance yesterday with, you know, people were saying, oh, someone yelled in Tommy Fleetwood's backswing. Yes. And they were saying, oh, this is, this is so horrible. And, you know, I always love that if you're this guy or you're an idiot, okay, buddy, you have like 20,000 Twitter followers that the guy who yelled is not going to see your tweet and then be really upset with himself. But anyways, so they asked Fleetwood after the round if he heard it. He said no. They asked his caddy after the round if he heard it, and he said no. And then so the, the, you'd think their response would be, oh, I was wrong. No, it was, you know, this is still terrible. This is still horrible. Right. This guy's still – well, no, he's not. He didn't yell in his back. Right. The guy didn't hear. But instead of saying, oh, right. I was wrong, you know, and this is – or delete the tweet, whatever it is, it's just still, oh, this is still wrong. And I think people were upset with the whole way that the tour tr- treated Fleetwood's run before. And then when Azinger said something, they finally had, you know, their, their, their thing to really complain loudly about and, and be unabashedly upset with. And so, I, again, right. what I said earlier, I think Azinger was a bit of a um, it will, insensitive, however you want to describe his tone. It was yeah. condescending. condescending. But let's not, let's yeah. not act like they were only upset with the condescending thing and not with the actual content of what he was saying. Right. And Fleetwood, I mean, the, the video, back to your point, too. I mean, you have Fleetwood saying he needs to win on PJ Tour. You have Fleetwood saying he didn't hear the fan. And yet people are still arguing it doesn't on matter. his behalf. Yeah. Right. It doesn't matter, even though the, the, the guy himself is saying it. And now there is pretty conclusive video uh, taken from the crowd that it was just your typical idiot yelling, get in the hole after impact, not before. So whatever, you know, the magic of television or whatever, it was obviously, you know, we, we there's a little delay or whatnot. It, it, it was not pre-impact. That's, that's why Fleetwood did not, been around and say who said that you know so and I'm and I'm happy obviously we're all very happy that a fan didn't affect the final shot Uh, but that was still a pretty stunning ending for a guy who after all that you know Twitter talk I think you know I think most people did want to see Tommy Fleetwood get that first win and certainly you know 17th hole that that clutch birdie putt set him up uh, to have a chance for the win but more likely the tie uh, and he ends up walking away with the bogey, I mean, that was a pretty pretty uh, rough finish to watch. Yeah, I was surprised. You got all of West Palm Beach to the left of the hole. I mean, we saw right. we saw Mackenzie Hughes in the, the group, yeah. or maybe two group before, hit a shot that legitimately would have ended up 100 yards left of the hole in, in who knows where if it wasn't for the grandstand. Hits the grandstand, right. and he has, you know, a 40-yard pitch with a ton of green to work with on a trampled right. down lie. It was a little thin, but these are professional golfers. You know, they're going to pick it clean, so... Right. Yeah, I, I guess he was going for the victory right away. Um, but I think also Azinger, not to praise anything Azinger says because he's obviously public enemy number one in the golf world right now, but he said <laughs> yeah, Fleet, Fleetwood's normal shot is his is a draw. Um, and he tried to hit a cut there. And, and to try yep. to hit a cut on the, the 72nd hole when it's not your natural shot, when you have water right, it's a dangerous shot. Um, very, you know, whether yeah, that's very a, dangerous. And, and, you know, uh, his caddy, Fleetwood's caddy, tweeted after the round, you know, to all the wankers or whatever word he uses, right. saying, you know, we should have played left and tried to, you know, you play, you play to win or you don't play at all. And that's clearly, you know, Fleetwood being a guy who isn't worried about losing his card, isn't worried about, um, you know, trying to rack up FedEx Cup points. M- maybe if he was a guy who, you know, was, wasn't in the top 20 in the world, he would have played safely left and tried to get up and down for the bunker. He's going for the victory. Okay, whatever. Still a really shocking shot. Um, yeah. No. I, yeah, I, I was going to say, you, you mentioned, I, I think the, the best part of maybe all this Twitter stuff was 
you get to hear all the, the British slang, the, the wankers and <laughs> bollocks yeah. and shite. Helmet. They love saying shite. Helmet. Yeah, he- right, exactly. Helmet, yeah. So we got to hear that at least. And, you know, it's funny. You mentioned um, aging again, and it just I, I've, I've heard all other people say today, oh, you know, I wish Johnny Miller were there. Johnny oh, Miller. Johnny would have ripped oh it. would have would have ripped Fleetwood and he also would have been just as condescending yeah. to Fleetwood's lack of PJ Tour wins. I mean, are people, what are people talking about? I mean, right. Johnny Miller would have said the same exact thing. He would have said, oh, he's never won on the PJ Tour. He needs to prove himself. He would have said that was a oh. massive choke. He yeah. would have said he choked in the exactly. moment. Exactly. a chance to win his exactly. first PJ Tour event and he, yeah. Exactly. And, yeah, in defense of Paul Isinger, I would say, you know, a couple weeks ago we were talking about uh, another broadcast and how sort of flat it was and how off the market was right. ultimately what you want on monday morning is to walk in and say i can't believe he said that i can't believe he said that you know obviously you want it to be founded in truth and 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 rooted in some sort of you know some sort of actual um statistical value but you know i think we should be thankful that paul isinger is you know allowing allowing the discussion to you know veer off the rails once in a while because that's ultimately that's ultimately uh, you know Makes it more entertaining. I think it's funny. We we complained a couple sure. weeks ago, like you said, it's too boring, and then this one right. was too spicy. Yeah, there's always something wrong right. with the broadcast. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Uh, well, in general, it was a great tournament. It's too bad that uh, you know some of the stars who live right there in Jupiter don't show up anymore. Because, and I, I understand the schedule's so packed, and uh, some of these tournaments have to to be a, a victim here. But uh, it's still it's pretty riveting theater with all the water and and uh, playing so tough. Uh, one of the guys, obviously, who didn't play was Tiger Woods, um, and uh, he now is not going to play this week as well at Bay Hill uh, at the Arnold Palmer Invitational. I, I think to most people, that's a pretty big surprise. I know, Dan, you were uh, one of the first to report this, obviously, and uh, you, you're our Tiger beat guy, and, and you get a sense of what he's trying to do here. Um, you weren't that surprised. That being said, I mean, you know, for a guy who's trying to win number 83, break the record, this is, you know, a lot of people thought uh, Bay Hill was going to be the place he does it, and now he's, he's just going to skip it all together. It's still a little bit of a surprise. Definitely a little bit of a surprise given, one, his history at Bay Hill, and two, his respect for Arnold Palmer and, and Arnold right. Palmer's family and what the event means. And also, now that Tiger has an invitational, he obviously wants to, is in the business of promoting other invitationals. Um, I think it says a couple things. I think it says, one, look, does Tiger want to win his 83rd PJ Tour event? Sure. Tiger want to play in the Olympics? Sure, he's not. It's not reason enough for him to put his body in jeopardy or to do anything that he doesn't feel comfortable with. He's not going to do anything that makes him feel physically even a little bit uncomfortable in this position. And why should he? Um, mm-hmm. You know, we we know number eighty three is is coming whenever it, it comes. The only thing that's really going to shift the narrative of his career right now is the majors, and that's where his focus is. He knows his right. his best chance to make a lasting impact at this point in his career is to win the Masters again to win the U.S. Open or to win the British Open. And he feels like anything that's going to put his body in a little bit of jeopardy is simply not worth not being able to do that. So I wouldn't be surprised, and this isn't saying anything that I know, I wouldn't be surprised if he doesn't play back, back-to-back all year. Because, back I think, back, yeah. because I think last year, after this point, the only time he played back-to-back was in the playoffs. Um, right. And he pulled out after one round of the Northern Trust and then had like a so-so right. BMW. So, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if he doesn't play back-to-back for the rest of the year. You know, the days of Tiger playing, I think we were all surprised 2018 when he first came back. He played like 17 or 18 times. And we yeah. saw him at the Ryder Cup. He was zonked. He was completely mm-hmm. pooped. He looked like a zombie at the end of that stretch. So I think the days of Tiger playing anything more than 12 events, 13 events are over. But I also want to you know, 
caution people from freaking out too much because he played five times last year before the Masters. If he plays the players, which I think we're all expecting him to, and he plays the match play, which I think we're all also expecting him to, that'll be four. So is it less Mm -hmm. than last year? Yes. Is it much less than last year? No. So I think it's just evidence that he's not willing to do anything that's going to put his uh, long longevity in jeopardy. And and yes, the Olympics would be nice, and yes, eighty three would be nice, but it's it's not at the expense of his body. Yeah, he's kind of like the he's the Kawhi Leonard of PJ Tour. He's not yeah. playing these back to back. So, well, I mean, do you think though once it gets to the playoffs, I mean, do you think he'll he'll even keep that up, or do you think that that would be the one time where he would do it? Maybe. I mean, it, it's hard. Yeah. To, it's hard to speak that far in the future, but do I do I see him putting his body in jeopardy and playing three weeks in a row to win a, set, a FedEx Cup? Not really. Yeah. On one hand, he's got he'll have the four majors behind him at that point. So there's less right. sort of at stake. However, at that point, the Ryder Cup will still be in front of him. Mm-hmm. So he's got to think that part through. So ultimately, I mean, we're talking about a guy who's not just thinking about in the moment, he's thinking about what's going to feel like a week from now. So he's thinking, if I play right. Bay Hill and I know I want to play the players, uh, I'm going to – it doesn't feel like a smart decision right now. So I, I would be surprised if he plays three straight events in the playoffs, just knowing what we know now. But also, it's like – it's a little bit of – it's, what's the opposite of front-loading? Load management. That's the phrase they use in the PGA Tour. This yeah. is a lot of load management. Uh, NBA. Yes. Yeah, NBA, load management. Yep, exactly. Uh, well, we mentioned the players. I think we still expect him to uh, go there. And I mean, a little selfishly, if you want him to win, I think you'd almost prefer he played Bay Hill instead of the players. Now, I know, obviously, the PGA Tour wouldn't prefer that. Uh, but got the players coming up. Uh, you know, two years ago, we had Webb Simpson kind of uh, reassert himself as one of the, the great players in the world with that incredible performance there. Um, obviously, he's won since, uh, recently in Phoenix, and with him every step of the way is Caddy Paul Tessori. Uh, obviously, we've had Paul on uh, the podcast before. He's, he's just a fantastic storyteller. He's done some videos for Golf Digest, kind of breaking down uh, TPC Sawgrass, that closing stretch. He's a, he's a native of Jacksonville. He's played that course a million times. Uh, he's an incredible player in his own right. I know Sam... Uh, you got a chance to to talk to him. Uh, yeah. Tell us a little about well, that. Dan and I spoke to him um, yep. a few moments ago, and he was on his way to playing this Florida Mid Am series. Uh, that you know, he's a reinstated profe- a reinstated amateur. And Dan mm. asked the question, you know, how many former PGA Tour uh, players are playing in this Florida Mid Am? He says, well, I you know I was over 17 making cuts on the PGA Tour. So Paul's uh, right. <laughs> he's a fantastic guy, great storyteller, great insight into the game, just like a really smart guy. So people who who, A, want to know about not just Webb Simpson, but understand life on the PGA Tour and the player caddy dynamic. Sure. He's he's as good as they get, so a really good discussion. Awesome. All right, well, uh, have a listen to our chat with Paul Tesori. Today's show is brought to you by our friends at Shady Rays. Shady Rays is an independent sunglasses company that's out to solve all your problems with sunglasses. Your days of overpaying for shades are over because Shady Rays offers high-quality, polarized shades starting at just $48. The craziest thing about this company is the warranty, though. Just listen to how insane this is. If, for whatever reason, you lose or break your pair of Shady Rays, they will replace them no matter what happened. Name somebody else that's replacing your sunglasses for just the cost of shipping and handling. You can't! Oh, and every time you place an order, 10 meals are donated to Fight Hunger in America. For our listeners, they gave us the best deal they have to offer, so head over to ShadyRays.com and use code GOLF50 for 50% off two or more pairs. That's two pairs of shades to take to the green for the price of one, only with the code GOLF50, G-O-L-F, 
5-0. Okay, joining us from Florida is veteran PGA Tour caddy Paul Tesori. Paul, thanks so much for joining us. Guys, thanks for having me on. Uh, I love geeking out on the game that I love, so let's get right into it. Yeah, so I, as we speak to you, you are in the car driving to a Mid-Am event. Explain again what's at stake today. <laughs> yes, yeah, so um, I am part of the uh, Florida State Golf Association uh, Mid-Am Winter Series. Um, it is a series of 10 events, and at the end of it, they crown a champion. Uh, I was fortunate enough to win it, and 18 and 19, and uh, I am in third place, a little behind right now with one tournament to go. So uh, I need to either win or, or finish solo second here uh, to have a chance for the title. So we got the, a two-day event Monday and Tuesday down in Sorrento, Florida. and uh, Going to go see uh, if I've still got anything left in the tank. Paul, i got to ask you, in this Florida Mid-Am Series, how many of the, your competitive, fellow competitors have once had a PGA Tour card? <laughs> that's not very do, nice to do ask they that way. Do they complain uh, about your uh, your history? They they don't because I think when they look up the results, they're probably like, yeah, he should have been with us all along. I think he was a mid-am playing the PGA Tour. Um, <laughs> so I think once they look up my results, uh, Bubba likes to remind me all the time that no matter how well Webb plays, I'm still 0 for 17 and cuts made on the tour. So, um, you know, it's one of those things that uh, it kind of – it wrecks me at the time, but now it helps me if anybody tries to raise any red flags. That's a good point. Maybe at these events, like if anyone questions you, you just have a, a card printed out with your PGA Tour record just to dispute. Yes, exactly. Handle. Yes, and just hand it out. That's not a bad idea at all. <laughs> so um, we did speak to you a couple years ago in the wake of, of Webb's win, and obviously he had a – he had a win earlier this year, so and it's kind of reemerged as as, a, as one of the top, you know, you could arguably top five, top ten players in the world. Um, you know, how exciting is that for you at this point in your career and his career to see him, you know, playing this type of golf? Yeah, um, you know, it's obviously extremely exciting. Um, I think coming off uh, the two years, so uh, fifteen, sixteen, and the first half of seventeen, just. You know, when the putting ban came down, we had twitched a year early. And, you know, it was beginning to look like we were going to struggle to ever find that form again. Um, we had fallen to the mid-170s putting. Um, and as hard as we worked, we just could not find something that could work for any type of consistent basis more than a, a tournament or, or two at the tops. And I think now looking back, it's made all of this that much sweeter uh, to know that we had gone down to the bottom of the barrel. Um, we had fallen down to around 100th in the world. And that was only because of some extremely talented ball striking and uh, what a great pair of hands he has. He was still chipping the ball well. Um, it was just a putter. And so now looking back, he's now, um, I think we finished fifth on the tour in putting in 2018. I think we were 11th in 2019. I think we're around 20th this year. So you know, he has now become an elite putter, better than he was uh, back before the putting ban. So um, all that hard work has now led to uh, some good fruits of the labor, so to say. And winning at Phoenix was extremely special for us. It, we had had some really tough losses in the previous 11 tournaments and four seconds and a, a third by one and a playoff loss involved in all of that. So uh, it was good to finally cross the finish line and uh, and know that we, we still can do it and, and hopefully we'll do it a few more times this year. You know, I, I had made this point uh, after Webb's win, and, and actually I don't even know if it's true, so it would be worth asking if, if you feel this way. But there's an argument to be made that when a player um, anchors the way that, that Webb did for so many years, 
Um, it allows them to to be a good putter, but there's possibly the chance that it prevents them from, from being a exceptional putter. And then now that he's no wow. longer, I mean, and again, this is just a theory. Um, yeah. And you know, because you know, maybe there's an element of feel that you're sacrificing. Do you think there's any validity to that point? <laughs> well, I definitely would have argued with you three years ago. Um, I would have said, man, you know, Webb has spent obviously. He had been using uh, that style, that you know, the belly putting. He had been using it since his freshman year of college. Um, he had spent, whatever, 20 years uh, perfecting that. No, he's not that old yet. Sorry, Weber, if you're listening. Uh, <laughs> he had spent 11 years perfecting that method. And I didn't really think there was any positive to, you know, if he putted a different way. But now that I've seen the other side of it, um, I would say you're right, and I would have been wrong. Um he is a better putter. His feel is better. You know, his putter is lighter now than it used to be because of how long the putter um, was at that time. And so I do think looking back now and looking at his stats and looking at his, um, you know, proximity to the hole and long putts and his three-putt avoidance and all of that, he's a better putter. So I'm going to give you one, me zero for keeping <laughs> score. Well, I want to ask you, you know, Webb is known as having one of, if not the best attitude, uh, strokes gained attitude, I think is, is the joke on the PJ Tour about Webb Simpson. Yes. Um, and so I want to ask you about how, how it was sort of in the depths of the struggles. Um, did you ever sense yeah. that he got down on himself or did he always sort of maintain that ruthless optimism that you know, he seems to have out there on the course these days? Yeah. Yeah. Great question. Um, no, there were definitely hard times. Um, Webb shows his frustration very different than the majority of us does uh or do excuse me um you know we might for instance me um i will show it you'll know that i'm frustrated um i can't hide it Webb thinks if i did play poker i'd be the worst poker player <laughs> on the planet you kind of know what i'm thinking um without even talking to me where Webb was a little different you know he would definitely kind of stuff it in a little bit and not let it out he never wants to show himself on the golf course but as far as emotion goes, it was very prevalent. Um, quite a few tears. Uh, Webb and I had a couple instances where, you know, we, we said some not great things to one another, and 90% of that was me um, and, and not him. Just uh, not that I was mad at him, but I was more frustrated that we hadn't tried more things. Um, you know, Webb is the guy. He had the same set of irons in his bag for 13 years before he finally changed. He um, – you know, the wedges, he's always one generation behind everybody else because he gets used to them. Uh, he used the same putter forever, and uh, now he's been using this, this last putter for a long time. He's just a guy that doesn't like to change. He finds something he likes, and he sticks with it. Thank goodness for my job security that that's the case. Uh, so there's a positive behind that. But um, definitely some frustrations that showed up more in emotions, some tears, um, some behind the scenes, you know, just am I ever going to get this? And to Webb's credit, he said in an interview after he won the players in 2018 that he never really doubted um, that he would be, you know, a top player again. And I have been really honest about that. I, I started to have my doubts because if you can't be a top player and be a poor putter. You can be a top player and be an average putter. You know, I worked for DJ Singh for almost six years. and People thought he was a poor putter. Well, no, he was not a poor putter. He was just an average putter, and he did all the rest of the game so well, the chipping, the bunker play, the wedging, the pitching, the driving, the golf ball, that he was able you know, to be the best player in the world. But I don't think he could ever be one and be a poor putter. And 
Uh, obviously, now he's turned it into being a spectacular putter, and I think it's because he never really lost faith and finally started looking outside the box to find other solutions to the putting. Yeah, I was just going to ask about those solutions. I know, you know, I went to Northwestern. I know Webb's done some work with Pat Goss. I think that's more short game stuff. I'm wondering if there was an instructor or, or you know, a tip or something that, that really made things click or, or what, what prompted so, him to really go outside the box. Yeah, so for us, it's more of kind of an act of faith than anything else. Um, we uh, had missed the cut in 2017 at Wells Fargo. Um, and that year, they held the tournament at Eagle Point, which is like a little piece of heaven for Webb. Bobby Long is one of his best friends, built the course over there to be like the Augusta on the beach. We have our guys trip, or Webb's guys trips there every single year where we bring 10 guys together and just play a ton of golf and laugh a lot and eat some good food. And we had missed the cut, had nine three putts and 36 holes, missed the cut by two. And the next week was the players, and we were out working just how we'd worked each and every week, um, just trying to get the mechanics down as good as possible. And it was Wednesday afternoon, and Tim Clark was over there. Tim had just recently retired from playing, and um, I was standing over on the side. And Tim asked me, he goes, Paul, do you mind if I go say something to Webb? Uh, about a potential claw grip. I said, no, please do. I've, I've brought it up before. Phil had brought it up before to Webb, and Webb just never really tried it. So Tim went over, talked to him for no more than five minutes. And Tim came back. He goes, yeah, he tried it. He kind of liked it. So I went back over, and, and immediately I saw some things that were going on differently in the stroke. Uh, Webb's always struggled taking the club inside and shut, and then he would return the face inside and open, and there's just a lot of work. And at times, it would feel yippy, um, so to say. Um, the more anxious he would get or uncomfortable he would get or like confidence he would get or bigger scenario it would get, the worse the stroke would get. Uh, um, whereas when he put the claw on there, it just immediately worked. And Webb's not one to go put something in play, but Thursday, uh, uh, first tee, he said, I'm doing it. I'm putting it in play. He worked it on the putting green. And so the first time he had ever used it in practice or in a tournament was 2017 of the players wow. and putted well that week. And immediately, uh, going into that week, we were 192nd in 2017 putting. We ended up that year, I think, like 88 um, and was like top five the rest of the year. Right, and that's when it was in May. And then so that, gone. Was, that was some, some real good putting in the end to make up all that ground. Exactly. And that was a short amount of time. As yeah. you know, there's so many tournaments now. And that was, like you said, back in May. I think we only had another quarter of the season left. And then fifth the next year and 11th the next year in top 20 right now. And the only change was, you know, we hear about the arm lock, but we were 192nd on tour putting the entire year with the arm lock. So the arm lock did not help. Um, it wasn't until Tim gave him that claw. And talking about the claw, um, we see how many guys now on tour are using the claw. Um, we saw Lee Westwood last week at the Honda using the claw, putting better than I've ever seen him putt. We saw Tommy Fleetwood now, you know, who's been a consistent top 10 player in the world using the claw. Uh, we know Phil Mickelson obviously has used the claw, and more and more times are seeing it now. And I remember growing up putting cross and people would come put their arms around me and say, oh, is everything okay? Do you have the yip? <laughs> <laughs> no. You know, you watch a guy putt straight convince you're like, man, that looks kind of weird. Like, wow, I haven't seen that in a while. So um, it's just different how golf is changing. Guys are doing anything they can uh, to, to make more putts. Yeah, well, it's funny. My 14-year-old son is now 
clog putts or clog, clog. rips. Yeah, he has the clog on, and uh, I've <laughs> I've had the same reaction that you do, which is like, God, it feels like he's trying to cheating here, or at least you know he's not really dealing with the issue. But you're saying that that it's totally fine. So I'm glad it, to hear it that. is. Yeah, I I would have been on on your boat. Yeah, definitely, probably ten years ago. Um, I thought it was for guys that had battle with the yips or anxiety, or very uncomfortable, whatever you want to call it. And no, I, I think more and more guys are saying, "Wow." The putter goes back more more consistently straight back, straight through with very little arc and very little face manipulation. And that's what we're trying to do. Um, and so I think that's why you're seeing more and more guys do it. That's great. So let me ask you, uh, just changing uh, topics for a second, the, uh, you got a little bit of attention a few weeks back for this uh, prank that Webb had uh, done against you with the <laughs> scripting. So talk us through exactly how that played out and, and how, you know, how far you uh, fell for yes. it. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. So for those of you that don't know, um, know me very well, which will be most of you, um, I'm a very, very plain dresser. I like uh, when I order clothes from Foot Joy, it's, hey, just send me all the solids. Shorts, I just want gray, black, and blue. Those are the only three color shorts I wear. And just send me your navies, your blacks, your whites, um, you know, your light blues or whatever. But the, the color shorts are going to go with is this, and I, I don't deviate outside that box. Like, you just won't see anything loud on me at all. And so uh, Webb wore a shirt on Wednesday at Phoenix, and he walked out there. I said, buddy, I just have to say this. You have accomplished something I didn't know was possible. I really think that is the ugliest shirt I have seen <laughs> on somebody. And he just thought it was hilarious. And what's funny is, is guys started walking by and say, Weber, I like that shirt. Where'd you get that from? So other people liked the shirt, which just shows I'm almost 50 years old. I like a little different generation and my tastes are very, very dull and plain. And, you know, guys were complimenting the shirt. So as the day progressed, I started getting um, a couple of text messages from, from foot joy guys. Oh, but you don't like our, you don't like our stuff. I'm like, no, it's not that. I just don't like that shirt. I don't like the print. So long story short, they start concocting a plan there at Phoenix that they're going to get me in Mexico, that they're going to script me. They're going to have four caddies do it. And, of course, all the shirts and shorts were terrible, right outside my um, my comfort zone. Now, everybody else thought they were amazing except for me, just not in my comfort zone. Well, they got all the other caddies on board. They got other players on board. And so each day, guys are like, you know, the other caddies that were wearing them were like, Paul, how good is this? And they were smart enough <laughs> to really sniff out my suspicion. They had a shirt made up with my Jana King logo, my RBC logo, my Foot Joy logo. They had it all logoed up. So my plan was, well, if they don't logo them, I'll just say I'm not allowed to wear them. Well, they had all that figured out. So um, Wednesday, it had created um, anxiety in me. I actually called my wife and like, honey, I, I, I don't want to wear this. Can I can't I say caddy no? wearing this shirt. <laughs> yeah, yes, wearing these shirts, you know, and they had had a scripted with shorts and everything. And I'm like, hon, I, I don't want you to say, baby, they take good care of our foundation. <laughs> so we really just kind of need you to get through. And they sat down with me late Wednesday afternoon. So it's all been a joke. We've had this planned uh, from the beginning. And I laughed. They got me good. And, and of course, Todd, uh, the Foot Joy rep, said, are you going to get me back? I said, no, it's for two reasons. You didn't make me wear them in competition. Then I probably would have had some kind of retaliation on you. <laughs> and number two, I said, it is funny. I, I know how plain I am. So they, they pulled off a good one, and I did not know it was coming. And the fact that they had at least two dozen players and caddies on board uh, just playing along was, was impressive. That's amazing. That's amazing. Uh, we are <laughs> recording this um, 
a week before the players, and obviously Webb won, and you're you're uh, you're very familiar with the with with the TPC Sawgrass. And um, I'm curious, one of the things that you had talked about in a series you did for us was about the walk from uh, 16 to 17 and the importance of distracting your player and making sure that they're not too focused on what awaits them. And you tell the story in this Golf Digest School series about how you almost picked a fight with Webb walking from 16 to 17 to distract him from, yeah. from you know, obviously the, everything that was at stake. So tell us that story. Yes. So <laughs> there was a lot going on on the weekend at TPC. We had a five-shot lead after two days and then a seven-shot lead after three days. And, of course, we know in the golf world, while that probably seems insurmountable outside of golf, we realize, especially around that golf course, how that can evaporate in a hurry. If you go out and shoot two over and somebody shoots five under, you're in a playoff. And it's not hard to do those things. So I had every trick in the book that I was using on Saturday and Sunday. And Sunday, so Webb and I are both big NBA fans. Um, he loves – he's friends with Chris Paul and Steph Curry. and But he loved Golden State. He really wanted to see them, um, you know, win back-to-back. And so he had just taken on – he didn't think that the Houston-Golden State series was going to go more than six games. And so I just kind of started doing a little research on Chris Paul and, you know, how many times he had gotten kicked out of games, but also how many times he had gotten other players kicked out of games, like kind of initiating fights and starting fights. And it's pretty much well run out. He was the best defensive point guard in the league. So I just decided I was going to tell him that Houston was going to win in seven that Chris Paul was going to get so far in Steph's head that Steph was going to throw a punch and get kicked out of a game. <laughs> and I was going to try to show how this was going to happen. So the first wait, we had bogeyed 8 and 10. The lead was down to 4. and We had to wait on 11 for about 4 minutes. And so I started it on 11-T, just kind of this little scenario about how Houston was going to win, about how Chris Paul is a better overall player than Steph, who was back-to-back MVP, the first unanimous MVP. It didn't make sense, obviously, but – I was pretty good at selling it. And by the time he made birdie on 16, I started talking to him again as we're walking around the corner. We had a six-shot lead with two to play. and I knew what was coming up. It's a long walk. And so I just kind of continued the banter on the way up on to uh, 17T to the point that when we got up to 17, he was still a little frazzled. I could just kind of tell him, like, all right, buddy, we got to get our numbers here. He's like, yeah, 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 all right, what do we got? You know, and started going back into the numbers. So – um, it was a fun story for me to be a part of. It definitely worked uh, both times because he didn't even really know where he was by the time he had gotten up to the tee box. Like he was so frustrated with what I was saying and how wrong he thought I was. So um, it worked. I planned it off. Uh, I planned it. I'm gonna have to choose a different sport next time if we're in that same situation. <laughs> that's great, Caddy. So yeah, it's interesting that you, you exactly. Mentioned- hey, that's just. Part of the job, part of the job. <laughs> so part of the job, I was going to ask you. So a couple of weeks ago, I caddied for a buddy of mine, Matthew Fitzpatrick, at, uh, at, Pebble, at Pebble Beach. And through three rounds, he was like tied for 20th, tied for 18th. And through eight holes on Sunday, the wind was up, but he was even par. And it was, for the day, it was one of those days where, you know, shooting even par, you're going to move up the board, just how windy it was. Um, and then he made a triple bogey on nine and a double bogey on twelve. And, you know, so we're down from T14, whatever it is, to T60, and things get really quiet. And I've caddied before, but never in a PJ Tour event before this, and I just didn't know what to say. Um, And and I'm curious, you know, what's your approach? And obviously, you've been with Webb for so long now that you know exactly what buttons to push at the right time. When things are going south like that, um, 
do you do you always step in? Do you never step in? What's your guys' sort of personal relationship? And and when things are, yeah. you know, obviously you just mentioned a story when things were going really well, and you still felt like it was appropriate for you to step in and, and sort of distract your guy. I'm wondering on the on the other end of the spectrum when things are going really poorly, um, what's your approach? Yeah, great, great question. It, I, I think it all depends on your player, um, and it definitely depends on your player. I remember with VJ, if things were stale or he wasn't going well, I would just pick somebody in the group. And let's just say it doesn't matter who it was, but let's just pick Colin Montgomery. And I would look and say, Siege, can you believe Colin's beating you by five? Can, can, I mean, how are you letting Colin Montgomery beat you by five? I mean, buddy, the guy hasn't been in a gym. He doesn't really care to go into a gym. You know, he's already later on his career, and, and you're letting him beat you like this. Like, what are you doing? Or, you know, I remember one time in the father-son, we were playing with uh, Greg Norman and his son, and Beach uh, Day was paired with his son, Cass. And, Greg, who had already been retired, I mean, was flushing it. He had not missed a shot. I remember Cass. I was like, Cass, just rip your father a little bit. Get him going. And he said, Dad, how come Greg's retired and he's better than you are and you're supposed to be number one in the world? <laughs> like like little lines like that. I remember Sean O'Hare, when I worked for him, I would challenge him a little bit, kind of kind of make him a little irritated. Just be like, are we just going to continue um, to play this soft the rest of the way? Just lay up. You want to just – if the pin's on the left, you just want to hit on the right side of the green and kind of challenge him that way. With Jerry Kelly, old hockey guy, he was easier to get lit up. Just push him when he wasn't expecting it. Like, just push him. Like, make him like, like what are you doing? And then that would kind of get him going. Webb, man, he's just an anomaly. The guy is just so great mentally. You don't have to do much. Mm-hmm. The only thing I have to do with Webb on occasion is when he's playing really well, slow him down. Um, when he's not playing well, um, just make sure because his confidence gets a little more rattled than we'd like. Um, he's working on that, trying to work hard on just if golf's not there that day or that front nine, not let the confidence get rattled. But I just remind him of good things that he's done. So just really positive reinforcement. Like, buddy, we've been here before. We've shot plenty of 38-30s on this tour. So, you know, let's do it again. Uh, keep your head down. We're one good swing away from turning this whole round. So just kind of that positive reinforcement. But Webb, again, he just mentally gets it. I don't know if you heard Xander Shoffley last year. You know, he had the flu in China, ended up losing in a playoff uh, to Rory, maybe? Yeah, um, to Rory. Rory might have won. Yeah, it was, Is a, that right? yeah. it was a par five, so, and he was kind of upset that it was a par five because Rory yeah, had such an advantage exactly. on the par fives. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, Xander had talked. They asked him how he did it, and he mentioned Webb in his press conference and then also told us about it. He goes, I. I just think of Webb Simpson. Um, he leads the tour every single week in strokes gain attitude. Mm-hmm. He's done pretty well for himself throughout his career. So I just thought about having a good attitude the entire time. And he always jokes about it. We didn't play well. Mexico seems to be our um, kryptonite. Uh, we don't seem to play that tournament well at all, the WGC. And so he came up and goes, How, how's the strokes gain this week? I said, uh, we're, we're struggling a little with the strokes gain. We're not quite up to par where we normally are. And he laughed and uh, we moved forward. But yeah, he doesn't quite count the way the other guys do. Yeah, no, I think Webb, and this is a huge compliment, is is I think a lot of other players look to him, especially you know someone like Fitz who doesn't hit the ball very far. Um, it looks looks at a guy like Webb who has just managed his game and not tried to do anything super different and, and trust in his abilities and gotten to I think number seven in the world now. Um, so it's yeah. not you know it's not just the strokes gained attitude where I think people really admire Webb, it's his it's his commitment to his game and his ability to get it done on the biggest stages without flying the ball 310 yards. 
um, you know, without yeah, being able to hit a pitching wedge 150 yards. And I think he's sort of emerged as this guy who, look, if Webb can do it, then I can do it. And I think that's having someone like that who, you know, for a while it was Luke Donald, a guy who didn't smash it but was still got to be number one in the world with unbelievable wedge play and really good putting. You know, and I've had conversations with Matt where, you know, he says, look, Webb Simpson's a guy who I, it can be done. You know, it's, it's much harder to do when you don't hit it 325, 30 yards, but it can be done, and, and Webb is proof of that. He has. You know, it's been really interesting to watch. He's done small, small things to try to not chase distance, to try to get distance without affecting his golf swing. He's kind of flipped his body profile um, around. He doesn't mind me sharing this. I've asked him just because I used to call him a skinny fat kid. You know, he was a skinny <laughs> kid that just had, like, no muscle tone mm-hmm. at all. Over the last couple of years, he hired uh, a trainer, Cornell Dreesen, um, who has been a big uh, impact on some other guys uh, kind of resurrecting their careers, Hendrick Stenson, Shaw Swartzel, Louis Ustase, and um, these other guys. And Webb hired him, and um, they've just done a lot of work. And he's completely changed his physical profile. He's now, um, he's now ripped. He's strong underneath. Now, he doesn't want to bulk up. He doesn't want to change his his look because he thinks that that could affect his ability to swing the golf club the way he knows how. Um, but he's done these little things. He's improved his mechanics slightly. So we're flying the ball about eight yards further now. The crazy thing is, though, we haven't gained on anybody. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Everyone's just, getting longer. The yeah. fields have just gotten yet longer and longer. And another thing we have to do is we have to pick, um, we have to pick our courses um, as much as mm-hmm. possible. I'm a firm believer that course design has led to this just dramatic uh, flip in the world golf rankings and the money list and everything else of what we see. And, you know, it's very modern now to create these forced carries on golf courses where you have to fly at 305 yards to wide fairways where, you know, I think the greatest course designs are your TPC Sawgrasses. We just saw the Honda Classic 600 par one um, at Tampa every year, Innisbrook, and they're not asking for forced carries, but you have to work the ball around dog legs. You can still use driver, but you have to control spin. Um, you have to control height. And I think more of those kind of golf courses we see the Hilton heads of the world. I do think guys will start changing their equipment to match that, add a little loft to the driver, maybe get a little spinnier golf ball. So we do have to pick the golf courses at times. You know, though, we've never really played well in WGCs, but this past year we just went to Memphis. It's the first shorter golf course we went to. That you have to work, and we finish second the very first one. So, I think it just shows that uh, if we can get some of these older school golf courses back in play with dog legs and smaller greens, I think uh, I think guys will start changing equipment in a hurry. Yeah, that's great. I know you've been a pretty outspoken critic of all this discussion about rollback, or and that, that that's not the answer. So, uh, it sounds like yeah, if everyone kind of followed that that path of just looking at the course designs, maybe you wouldn't need to take such drastic measures. Um, I, I think so, and I think it'll allow us uh, guys that aren't as good at golf, guys that need that big old club head. Cause I think the thing that's going to happen, they're going to have to shrink the size of the club head. Um, you know, that's been the biggest difference in golf. Is you know, we used to have these very tiny little drivers, and now you got four sixty cc's, and the three woods are three times the size of the driver that I grew up playing. And if they take that away for everyone, that's just going to make golf harder for you and I. And then if you know, you end up. Uh, you know, going the other way where a different set of rules, I think that opens Pandora's box in a different way. So yeah. we'll see. They got a lot on their plate. I know they're trying as hard as they can. Yeah. Listen, I know you got to go. I, I did want to ask one other question, and it was something related to what Dan had asked you about, you know, c- course discussion between uh, you and your player. And last year at the players, there was an incident, not incident, a, a, a sequence where John Rahm and his caddy had a disagreement about club selection. 
uh, and there's like a bit of a delicate dance that goes on there about how to sort of for, you know state your case and when to back off. And I'm curious like how that plays out with you and Webb when you clearly disagree uh, on a yeah. on a play, and you know how how firmly do you push it, and when do you back off? Yeah, so I love what you just brought up because that conversation happens all the time. The conversation they had is when you have a a truly elite player who allows his caddy to have the freedom of speech is what I call it. I don't know how, how else to say it, but an elite player who gives the caddy a freedom of speech. And I believe that's the way the best teams have always worked. I know we hear the thing and Bones talk about, you know, one veto a year and everything, but you listen to their conversations. They would, they were discussing everything. They talked about clubs, flight, how hard to hit it, curvature, everything. You listen to Stevie and Tiger in the old days, and you would hear all those great conversations. And the common denominator, and uh, Jim Furyk, and I could keep going on. Um, you know, I know Greg was like that with Tony Navarro and all these, but they provided their caddies a freedom to just speak their mind. And what we saw is, I mean, Adam was right, and in the moment, John was right too for himself. Um, you know, Adam was like, buddy, if we lay up, I can get you 100 yards to a back 10. You're one of the best wedge players in the world. We're going to get you a putt inside of 12 feet. The way you putt, you're probably going to make it. Let's just take that play. Let's go. Obviously, John Rahm, one of the most aggressive players in the world and also one of the best players in the world. And he's like, well, I could also just hit this trap hook, you know, five iron around the corner, get it up in that green side bunker, and that would be a lot easier bunker shot. And then Adam came right back and said, yes, I hear you. But, you know, my play is safer. My play makes more sense, blah, blah, blah. John ends up hitting the shot. He ends up catching it heavy and he hits the water. But the, the reason why I kind of went through all of what happened again was to say this. I really think that was a perfect example of the player doing what he should have done. He thought he had the shot. He thought he could pull it off. I think he, and he said afterwards he feels like he pulls it off nine times out of ten. Well, then he, he should go. He's the player we can't feel what they're feeling. But Adam needs to sit there in that situation and say, no, I don't like Play. The percentage play is over here in the fairway. Lay it up, hit the wedge shot. And Webb and I have a discussion like that. I would say we average once a round where I'm on something different than him. And the last thing I'll look at him and say, buddy, you're the player. If you tell me this is what you like, tell me right now, and I'm going to support you with everything you have. And he'll look at me, and he's like, you don't love it, do you? Nope. And usually he's going to go with me because my scenario is usually going to be safer and smarter. But every now and then he looks at me and goes, why don't you just sit over there and watch this? And I'll laugh, <laughs> and he'll sit over there and do something I didn't know he could do. Yeah. So um, I think that conversation goes on a lot more. Unfortunately, there's still probably half the players, I think, on tour that don't quite give their caddies the freedom to be able to say that and or maybe don't have the confidence in their caddies to know that that was the time to step up. Well, that's great insight. I, mean, it's, I find it fascinating, so it's great to kind of hear what goes on behind the scenes. I did voice some concerns by week. I was overruled. But that's because <laughs> I was a fill-in. So. The fourth hole at Pebble Beach, I'll, I'll maintain to my deathbed. You should never be hitting driver yeah. on the fourth hole at Pebble Beach. But, hey, he's the pro. There you go. Uh, well, I, I think I think that one I would agree and disagree. I think if it's the two right pins, I like your driver play. Two left pins, I like the layup. It so was like front. It was like do... front right, but Matt's doesn't hit it very far, so it was going to be a fifty-yard shot as opposed to one hundred and ten-yard shot. And the wind was off the left, and there, there's water on the right. So I'm thinking you're just going to hit. You're going to hit this way left. And he's like, No, I like the shot. I see it. Hits it in the left bunker. Sixty-yard bunker shot ends up making bogey. The other two guys in the group oh. made birdie. But hey, other two guys in the group made birdie. But you know what? That's neither here nor there. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. That's great. Yeah. Well, listen, Webb. You, uh, Webb. Uh, Paul. You. Uh, you uh, 
you have to go. You got a big Florida Mid Am tournament. Is that going to be on Golf Channel or on NBC uh, the network? <laughs> uh, well, thank thank goodness neither one of them will be. I keep telling all my caddies, I was like, you guys need to start playing individual tournament because it'll remind you how to have empathy in a hurry. Uh, uh, all my, uh, I know Webb will be looking. Uh, I've got other players. They'll look and text me on fsga.com and they love to rasp me. You can go hole by hole and be like, Holly, nice playing. What happened on six? Yeah, <laughs> thanks a lot. I appreciate that. But, um, yeah, it, it's fun stuff. I really enjoy it. And uh, you get to kind of meet some good people and just remind yourself how hard this game is. Of course. Well, great. Good luck, and thanks so much for the time, and we'll see you at the players in a couple of weeks. Boys, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it, and we'll talk to you soon. All right, Paul. Bye. Bye-bye. It's 2020, and we're all looking for ways to improve our health and hit our own personal goals this year, whether it's being smarter about how we train, making a better effort to get more sleep, or simply thinking more about our body's overall wellness. As Alex likes to point out, I'm not getting any younger, and as and for someone of my advanced age, it's imperative I'm thinking not only about how hard I work out, but also whether I'm getting enough rest. Today's sponsor, Whoop, is a fitness tracker that goes beyond counting steps and provides 24-7 fitness, sleep, and recovery insights personalized to you. There's nothing else like it on the market. Our lives cause different levels of stress on our body from training to work and our lives at home. Whoop understands that and quantifies it for you into actionable metrics. With Whoop, you'll get daily recovery score that looks at biometrics like heart rate variability, resting heart rate, and your sleep performance to let you know how ready your body is to perform. You're also given insights into the intensity of your training in real time and track how strenuous your day is, as well as get next-level sleep insight with suggested sleep times based on how strenuous your day is, track your sleep stages and cycles, and see how much sleep you get compared to how much you needed. Whether you're looking to be smarter about your fitness, better about your sleep, or be more mindful of your body's recovery, Whoop has you covered. If you're looking to be smarter about how you train, sleep, or recover, Whoop is offering our audience 15% off with the code GD15. Go to whoop.com, that's W-H-O-O-P.com, and use the code GD15 at checkout and optimize your performance with Whoop. All right, thanks again to Paul Tesori for joining us. Uh, Guys, a couple things before we go. I I thought uh, one of the, the viral moments of the of the weekend maybe even of the year was luke donald finally getting back uh in a late tea time on a weekend at a pj tour event and the announcer just absolutely butchers his intro gets uh pronounces the hometown wrong says he won the 2016 honda when he won the 2006 and then worst of all he calls him luke mcdonald (laughs) i mean this guy's a former world number one. Really How does that happen? I mean, it's disrespectful. I mean, now that's something that I'm surprised the European writers weren't even more up in arms right. about. It, what's worse, this or last year's? Um, was it Palm Beach Post with Kevin uh, Keith Mitchell? No name what, winner. Yeah. No name winner. So it's kind no of all the same no category. Name, right. No name champion. Oh, and, and and supposedly he comes back this year and he's being interviewed by a local TV channel and they call him uh, Pete Mitchell. Instead of Keith Mitchell, so I mean that guy can't win either. Yeah, so there's something something up around there. Um, yeah, I also want to give props to uh, Bernhard Langer, 62 years old. He wins yet again on the PGA Tour Champions. That's number 41. He's closing in on Hale Irwin's 45. I mean, there's no doubt he's going to get to that, even though he's going to hit 63 later in the year. Um, yeah. More impressively, maybe he has now made because who were we talking about recently? Career earnings. Oh, Charles Howell. I was just going to say he's won like, uh, isn't it like eight million on the PGA Tour and like thirty-one on the Champions Tour or something? 
$29 million on the senior tour. Yeah. He's closing in on $30 million just uh, on the senior tour. And it's three, it's three quarters guy, of his career earnings right. as, a, as a professional golfer. I mean, obviously, yeah. it's not apples to apples with inflation and stuff, but it just right, goes to right. show that, you know, a lot of the senior tour is no joke. A lot, of these, a lot of these guys make a lot of money, and, and some of these guys, like yep. Ken Tanigawa, guy won the senior PGA a couple years ago. He never was a professional before he turned right. 50. So this is it's not just a, you know, a victory lap. For a lot of guys, it's it's serious breadwinning. Do you remember that video exactly. from last year, Alex, they, of uh, Longer's house and all the trophies? It would yeah. be like like the way yeah. I'm sure Julia's toys are on the floor at your house yeah. is exactly yeah. what Longer – like they just got random trophies everywhere against the window. Yeah, and this time he got that that cool helmet. He said he wanted to to bring that back. So yeah, he's got him. He's it's incredible. I mean, his house is overrun with trophies. Uh, just an amazing thing. Uh, on the flip side, I want to want to finish just uh, an interesting stat here. Uh, we got Bernard Longer, sixty two, continuing to win. But on the other hand, in the last uh, twelve months now, we have five. PGA Tour winners under the age of 22 years old, which is, I thought, a pretty incredible stat. Obviously, Sung Jae-im being um, the latest one to do that. Um, and, and actually, Sean Martin from PGA Tour takes this a little deeper. Uh, just to show you how rare that was. By the way, all five of those are since July. Previously, there was a stretch. Four players, 22 or younger, won in a 15-year stretch on wow. tour from 1985 to 2000. So just to show you kind of the shift, uh, we always talk about it. It gets talked about, you know, maybe too much, but I don't know if it does get talked about enough because you're having these guys win younger and younger, um, and they just keep coming. Well, it's the obligatory, uh, we have to say, the game's in a good place now. Is that what we're supposed to say? Game's in a good place. But I, I, I will, I do, I, you know, I always link everything back to hockey because, and they talk about the NHL right now, about how the game, you know, like the number of, you know, young stars and that the window of being a, an elite NHL player has now shifted where, like, your prime is, like, 25. I wonder if that will start to happen right. in golf where, where like, the, the window for guys to be elite. Now, obviously, golf's different. But right. that, you know, it used to be you know your your time to make hay was in your thirties. I'm 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 right. sensing that that's going to shift. Right. Well, and and also too with with you know we're going to have to see some of these guys now who've made so much money um, by the time they turn thirty. I mean, you know, not to pinpoint somebody. We were talking about Ricky Fowler this past week. How much time he spends twenty five to thirty days a year just doing commercials and with sponsors. How, how if these guys once they get to the 30s, which as you say, Sam, used to be when they really made their money and made and won their tournaments, if if the motivation is still there, I mean, we've already seen there's going to be some big names that get to the, the senior tour like Phil Mickelson and not really maybe have that much interest. So uh, yeah, you're right. I think I think it is moving up, um, and you know certainly we're still going to see late bloomers here or there uh, pop around, but but yeah, it does it does seem like that they they kind of hit the prime. A lot earlier now, and certainly Sung Jm. Wow, he's he. Uh, he looks like he's going to be around for a while. Yeah, I mean, I think these guys come out of college just ready to win. I think that's one of the big differences. You learn, you have to learn how to win in different. You know, and obviously, Sung Jm didn't go to college, but Sung Jm has been a professional since he was seventeen. Uh, played in Japan for for two years before coming right. to the Web.com tour. So it's not like this is, you know, their first experience down the stretch or their first time. You know, I just think you you win a lot as a junior. You win a lot in college. It breeds this confidence, and then guys 
it's all about belief. They go out there believing that they're that they're ready to win, and I think that didn't always used to be the case. There used to be sort of, oh, he's a rookie, you know, give him a couple years. But the expectations now are that if, if you're one of the best players, best amateurs in the world or one of the best young college players in the world, that you should be able to, and, and there's no reason that you can't compete right away. So I think as much as it's a physical thing and these guys hit the ball super long and, and they're all training and they're all very physically mature, there's also the mental aspect of it where they're ready to win. So I think that's that, that should definitely not be uh, undersold. Yep. All right, guys. Well, it was fun. Um, I just got word. I'm, I have a dentist appointment at three. Congratulations. So hopefully I'll get this uh, resolved. I, I, I told them, please, if anything opens up, I'm, I'm here. But I'll, I'll, I'll run over there. But uh, thanks to everybody for putting up with, with that. Thanks uh, for listening. Thanks again to Paul Tesori for joining us. Thanks to our producer, as always, Greg Gottfried. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts if you haven't done so already. And check back next week to see who our guest is.